Welcome to Idle Chatter, brought to you by the Machinery Digest, where steel and soil meet. A weekly podcast by a New Jersey farmer to all farmers and ranchers across this great nation. And yes, there are farms in New Jersey. Regardless of the crop you grow or the livestock you raise, we all have one thing in common. Agriculture runs on passion, sweat, tears, and machinery. And that is why the Machinery Digest exists. A no-nonsense, grease-under-your-fingernails educational website. It was created to provide a transfer of knowledge so that you can maintain, service, and most importantly, understand today's complex farm equipment. My name is Ray Bohax and I farm too. It is time now to get under the sheet metal. Hello my friends, Ray Bohax here, the Hot Rod Farmer, and welcome to this week's episode of uh, Idle Chatter. For a second there I thought the na- I forgot the name of my own show, that's what happens when you're uh, moving a lot of papers around on your desk. I don't know about you, but um, much to my chagrin, my desk is not what it should be, and when my wife Charlotte, who is a, uh, I say it respectfully and lovingly, is a neat freak she comes down and she sees this and she starts moving things around and i uh get kind of upset over it because i tell people that that my desk is a controlled mess i know where everything is and i'm sure a lot of you have the same thing in your farm shop i do not like that in my toolbox my toolbox has to be very neat and very orderly but uh, not that it always is full disclosure but my desk is not that and I guess I either need a bigger desk or less responsibility uh with like like almost like everyone today it's not something just that I'm that uh is impacting me is that you have so many things going on I have uh, my writing career I have the the uh, Farm Machinery Digest website, the podcast, the Idle Chatter podcast, which you're listening to, right? So you know it's there. Uh, the farm, the stuff for the house, the animals, the cars, the trucks, the tractor, forget about it. Uh, you go nuts with all this today. And, uh, and you know, a pet peeve of mine is that when they put computers in years ago, they said it was going to cut back on the paper. Well, you know, I loved it years ago when they just had a bank book. And you had your money in the bank, and you gave them the bank book, and you made a deposit, or you went in, you made interest, you put the bank, folded it up, you put it in a drawer, you had three or four accounts, you had four bank books. Now, forget about it. You get, I get bank statements. Unbelievable. I said to Charlotte, we're like squirrels. We don't even know where our money is because you can't put it over here. They can't do it. Forget about it. It's a different world. But it really isn't a different world because the sun still rises in the east, sets in the west. The seed is still put in the ground the same way, right? A plant still grows, a baby is still born the same way. But sometimes this technology just gets to be uh, overwhelming and it seems to be non-productive. Well, hopefully I'm going to have a interesting show for you today. And it will pick up on last week's show, which was about volumetric efficiency. And if you did not listen to last week's show, it you could go back and listen to it either on my website, farmmachinerydigest.com, Apple iTunes, 
You could listen to it on the Fran Network, which is the Farm and Rural Ag Network, or on Carbon Media, and they all host my podcast, and I'm very grateful for that. So if you did not listen to that show for some reason, it wouldn't be a bad idea for you to go back and listen to it. You do not have to listen to it prior to this episode, because it's not a part one and part two, but they're intrinsically linked. So you would get the most from it if you had the opportunity to listen to volumetric efficiency first of the the show about that. But hey, you know, it's uh, nice and warm today, and I believe it is in most parts of the country after last week. And it was not as cold here in New Jersey on our farm as a lot of you people had, and especially in the in the in the Corn Belt and the Western Corn Belt and the Great Plains. We only got down to about minus 10, minus 11 uh, Fahrenheit, obviously, and uh, didn't really get much colder than that. Uh, and it warmed up during the day. It was you know single digits, you know four or five or six, whatever, depending upon where you took the reading. If it was a little bit in the sun, it was a little bit warmer, but in the shade it wasn't. But I know a lot of you, a lot of you people had you know terribly cold weather, and that's uh, that's obviously you know something that's very hard to to deal with and it's especially if you have livestock it's very hard on livestock and all the animals and the the only consolation that we could have is that the uh, good lord brought it to us and he'll get us through it and obviously he did so hopefully there wasn't too much suffering on on any creature's part human four-legged winged or what have you but uh it was quite cold you want an interesting aside to that and I may have mentioned this last week, but a gasoline engine will not start uh, at anything colder than minus 45F without uh, some sort of external uh, heat source. So if the fuel is minus 45 ambient temperature and the air inside the motor is minus 45, in theory it will not start. You have a little bit of a better uh, chance of getting it to start with fuel injection than you would with a carburetor, but not necessarily for the reason you would think there's nothing wrong with a carburetor. A carburetor what is was considered a wet flow system. The fuel and air mixed together and coursed through the manifold runners to the cylinder. So the pumping action of the piston in the cylinder when you're cranking the engine did nothing to heat that air and that fuel until it reached it. Whereas on a port fuel injection system, you are spraying the fuel. If it's a true port system, it is spraying the fuel about 100 millimeters from the intake valve right at the juncture of the intake port and the, in, uh, the intake port of the cylinder head and the runner of the intake manifold. And if it's a more modern gasoline direct injection system, which acts like a diesel, it f- sprays the fuel right into the combustion chamber. Then the heating of the air, a la like a diesel compression ignition, the pumping action of the piston actually raises the temperature of the air and that's how a diesel runs we mentioned that in the show a uh, uh, a couple of shows back I think about uh, getting an en- engine to start in cold weather I'm stumbling over my words as usual trying to think of what the name of the show was um, but anyway is that so that pumping action of the piston will actually raise the air temperature and the trick on a gasoline engine is to get that air temperature high enough at at minus 45 or colder without wetting the spark plug and then uh, she will light off it won't be too happy for the first second or two but it will light off in both a gasoline and a diesel engine 
and this is not what the podcast is about today, but since I'm there, whatever, uh, yes, in the diesel engine, something called the reaction zone needs to start. And the reaction zone is where the heat travels from the burn to the unburned mixture. And then once the react reaction zone is established, then the engine is much happier. And uh, that is why an older diesel engine doesn't uh, run too well for the first you know, 10, 20, 30 seconds after it starts. Because it's uh, it, even though the fuel is not gelled, it's not starving for fuel, there's no reaction zone established yet. So uh, as the combustion starts, it's it's going over to the colder region and that the flame is actually being quenched so it's being put out because of that so uh, hey like I said you know last week if you go on jeopardy you got a couple of questions there to answer to make some money but let's get going and we'll get into today's show and it's going to be about turbocharging so we're going to talk about turbocharging, and as I said, that works hand-in-hand hand with volumetric efficiency because the purpose of it is to increase the volume of air in the cylinder. So what we're going to do, I'm going to just excuse me for one second. I had to cough there, so I had to hit the cough button. I may not be too good with that, but uh, um, all winter I fight I fight colds and allergies and as I have said before my wife is a kindergarten teacher so she just as I start to get better she brings home a gift for me from a, uh, from one of the kids and I get cold I get a uh, cold or sinus infection again but anyway so thank you for your patience what there is an engine that has no means to artificially fill the cylinders with additional air is called normally aspirated or some people call it naturally aspirated now the the converse of naturally aspirated is what is called a forced induction engine there's some sort of fan that feeds more air into the cylinders and that could be done one of two ways it could either be done through a supercharger or a turbocharger a supercharger is mechanically linked to the crankshaft and is run off the crankshaft while a turbocharger is driven off the exhaust gas and is and has nothing to do with the crankshaft so actually a supercharger is a parasitic load because it takes power to turn the supercharger to feed or force more air into the engine whereas the turbocharger is not considered parasitic because it runs off the exhaust gas going past it so think of it like a a water wheel uh, an old grist mill whereas the river is the exhaust gas and it's spinning the grist mill that's how a turbocharger works now to answer the question that nobody's asked yet uh, because this is a monologue at this particular point but some people say well if you put a turbocharger in the exhaust that it is that it is a parasitic loss because it's increasing the uh, resistance of the exhaust to exit the cylinder and if you wanted to look in theory you arc that would be a correct statement but for all practical purposes it's it's not enough of a flow restriction to really impact anything and that is why it is not considered any sort of parasitic loss or any loss on the engine so now why do we want to feed more air into the cylinder 
Well, as was discussed in last week's show, volumetric efficiency measures the amount of fill that is in the cylinder. And we like to use the word charge, which is fuel and air mixed together. But keep in mind that the turbocharger and supercharger are only moving air. And then the fuel is mixed downstream someplace, uh, downstream of where uh, it, before it goes into the cylinder. So, so it's a it's going to fill the cylinder to capacity or beyond. Now, a quick rehash from last week is that on a naturally aspirated or normally aspirated engine, whatever you want to use the term, they're both correct, is that the pressure differential between the atmospheric pressure and the vacuum, the low pressure region, remember vacuum is anything that is less than atmospheric pressure, pushes the air into the cylinder and fills it up with charge. Okay, air, and then at one particular point, the fuel is introduced. In the carburetor, it's intru- with a carburetor, it's introduced early on in that flow path, and with a fuel injector, it's in- it introduced either with a port system at the end of the intake runner or a gasoline direct injection system at right into the cylinder or with a diesel right into either a pre-chamber on an IDI engine indirect injection or right into the combustion chamber with a direct injection engine. So that's it's really moot it doesn't make any difference because the fuel is all entered downstream but at that particular point it is still identified within the industry as charge and that is why on a lot of turbocharge applications and we'll touch on this briefly later on is that they call it a charge air cooler in most industrial type engines diesels and uh, farm equipment uh, construction equipment uh, any type of industrial type of diesel they usually call it it's abbreviate CAC charge air cooler whereas in a uh, on a gasoline engine they usually call it just an intercooler but it's both the same it's a radiator to cool the temperature of the char- of the air going into the cylinder and the reason why we want to do that why we want to cool it is uh, for two is is basically uh, one reason with two parts, one A and one B. One uh, A being is that every, for every 10 degrees Fahrenheit, and you could do the math for those who are interested in the or familiar with the uh, metric system, which I don't, I didn't do the math, but for every 10 degrees Fahrenheit that you alter the incoming air temperature into an engine, and I don't care what it is, whether it's a lawnmower or a 5,000 horsepower. Uh, diesel in a Mississippi riverboat and for every 10 degrees that you modify the air temperature you will impact the power of the engine by one percent alrighty so if you make the air cooler the horsepower goes up if you make the air hotter the horsepower goes down and that simply has to do with the density of the oxygen molecules the density of the air then when the air is hotter the molecules are further apart and it is less dense when the air is colder the molecules are much closer and is and there's a higher level of oxygen that's why with this real cold weather if you're able to get out on the road with some sort of engine or some sort of vehicle, you could feel that it has more power because it most definitely did have more power because of that 10 degree F 1% change. So if you were at 40 below versus zero, at 40 below you would have 4% more power than you would at 
zero degrees and you could do the math for the rest of it so the purpose of a charge air cooler or intercooler is to lower that air temperature and make it denser and what another but the b the one b right i said there was two parts but there really one reason is that when you compress air via either a turbocharger or a supercharger when you compress the molecules together you're going to cause friction and that friction is going to raise the temperature of the air so inherently a supercharger or turbocharger any time of forced induction any type of forced induction system will have hotter air exiting the the uh, supercharger or turbocharger going to the engine than the air coming in and that's from the natural compression of the molecules and if you remember back to a couple of shows back we were talking about getting engines to start when they're cold i spoke about diesels is that the actually if you remember the compression i just spoke about it with the gasoline direction injection the compression of the air in the cylinder during crank is what heats it up and allows the engine to allows it to ignite i discussed that a minute or so ago uh, about the reaction zone so that is why you will find that that probably 99.9 percent of the engines today that have forced induction have some sort of charge air cooler and uh, the charge air cooler is used to lower that air temperature all right to make the air denser than it, than it would have been when it is heated and as an aside to that it's also used as an emission control device because there is an emission called oxides of nitrogen and if you look at a gasoline engine or a diesel engine it has EGR exhaust gas recirculation that is to control oxides of nitrogen and there is um, what creates oxides of nitrogen in the cylinder is three things there's there's cylinder pressure heat and exposure time the, the length of the burn speed so when you put those three together you create oxides of nitrogen so then um, the um, leading edge flame temperature in the cylinder has to be above 2500 degrees for the oxides of nitrogen to really um, start to be produced it gets produced before that but it's uh, not as great so in essence, any type of forced induction today, you're going to find some sort of intercooler, a charge air cooler, intercooler, whatever you want to call it, you're familiar with. There are air-to-air -air units, which means that the air courses through it. It's like a heater core, all right? Air courses through it, and then it, it gives up. It's a radiator. It gives up its heat to the atmosphere, and then you have what is called air-to-liquid, the air being the charge air, and there's liquid coolant around around it which is basically akin to a uh an engine's radiator in reverse the air is where the liquid is and the liquid is where the air would normally be so in most applications you'll find that it will be a air to air type of intercooler and that is why you'll look and see that they'll on the piece of farm equipment that they'll stack these all up and lots of times the air to air intercooler is the first thing and then there'll be some kind of oil cooler behind it and the last thing in the row is usually the engine's radiator and just prior to that is the condenser for the air conditioner alrighty so now the thing is that we want to increase the volumetric efficiency because as I said last week that contrary to popular belief is that the cylinder on an engine on any engine is not a hundred percent filled with charge air and fuel mixed together when it's running 
and it on a normally aspirated engine it usually achieves around 80% volumetric efficiency so that means that only 80% of the bore is being filled with charge and there are applications last week I discussed about like the new Ford Mustang motor but for all intents and purposes and for our discussion is that we have uh, that 80% is a good number specifically on a farm engine and on a normally aspirated diesel engine because the piston speed is very low and you cannot uh, pump a lot of air alrighty so now by having some sort of fan be it a supercharger or a turbocharger and a, a, a few minutes more into the show I'm gonna break apart from supercharger but this is all generic what I'm talking about at, the, at that particular point the air doesn't know how it got into the engine all right whether it was with a crankshaft driven supercharger or exhaust driven turbocharger so now if we're only using 80% of the engine size to make power if we could put a fan on it we could increase that and if we could get that to 90% if we get that to a hundred percent or we could actually get it above 100 110%, 120%, 130%, 140%, 200%, 300%, whatever. And, and what's going to happen is that the way you are able to achieve that, or it's not you personally, the engineering community when they're building an engine to achieve that is by balancing out the cubic feet of air cfm of flow if everybody has a grain dryer you're real familiar with cfm of air correct so if you have a uh, a fan in a dairy barn it may be rated at cfm cubic feet of air per minute so it's a combination of the cfm of the air and the pressure that could be built in the cylinder so it's a uh, it's a juggling act but for most part it's the CFM of air so if we have a bigger fan right we could move more air into the engine and that will increase the volumetric efficiency now there's a rule of thumb that I would like to give to you and for every 15 pounds of boost, it's actually 14.67, which is atmospheric pressure, but for easy math, everybody says 15. For every 15 pounds of boost, the engine it responds as if it were twice the size. So let's say arguably for easy arithmetic, you had a 100 cubic inch engine and it was normally aspirated. Now, if you put 15 pounds of boost on that engine, it would respond as if it was a 200 cubic inch engine. If you put 30 pounds of boost on that engine, it would respond as if it's three times, as it's three times its size. And if you guys are in some, I know I have a number of followers on Twitter, though I'm not a big Twitter guy, but it's been a blessing because I've met a lot of great people and they're coming to the podcast and to the website. But there's a number of tractor pullers. And if you look at these guys, some of these guys are running 200 pounds of, uh, of boost, 300 pounds of boost. Well, I think 300 is probably pushing it, but they're running crazy amounts of boost, all right? And I'm not that intimate with the actual uh, you know, boosts on those engines. I have a cursory knowledge of them, but I don't build those engines, but I have a cursory knowledge of them. Is that So you do the math. So you divide that by 15, and that's how many times bigger that engine thinks it is. So that is the reason 
why we want to increase the volumetric efficiency because we now have an engine that is a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde at idle and at light load under no boost it has the fuel consumption and the parasitic drain of a small engine but once that fan be it crankshaft driven or exhaust driven starts to kick in and gets into full boogie there now we have an engine two three four times five times uh, of what it is so it's a Dr. Jekyll Mr. Hyde you know, so it could uh, it could dance slow and it could dance fast, all right? So, and that is why turbocharging and supercharging is so prevalent today on newer engines. Now, as an aside to that, uh, there's a lot of asides in this because this is, show is only about an hour and there's a lot to get covered here. But I don't want to make you an engineer, as I always say, I want you to have an understanding, to be the educated consumer, the educated farmer or rancher, and then you can make the best decisions if you understand if you understand something. Uh, but the whole problem is I just lost my thought. Okay, but anyway, <clears throat> is that if you could increase the size of that engine, you're making it more efficient. But I got my thought back. Uh, is that I sometimes confuse myself, which is not good. Uh, <clears throat> but... On a diesel, they use the turbocharger and specific, the turbocharger and intercooler, bacon and eggs together to help with emissions. And you say, how can it help with emissions? Because inside a cylinder, whether it be a gas engine or diesel engine, but specifically a diesel, because of the slower burn rate of the fuel, is that if you could stir it up, like having a barbecue grill and fanning it, if you could stir it up and, and cause and create what it's called in-cylinder charge motion and get everything mixing up very quickly and moving around a lot, you will increase the burn speed and you will reduce the emissions of the engine. So whereas on the gasoline side of the aisle, turbocharging and supercharging were used as what we would call a power adder to have a smaller engine, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde it, on the diesel side of the aisle, we're doing it for Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. All right, you calm and calm and 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 tough, right? I don't know if tough is the right word, but you know, calm and and then strong. And they were also doing it as an emission control strategy. And if you and and if you guys even think back years ago when Dodge came out with the original Cummings-powered pickup truck, it was turbocharged and non-intercooled. And then they added an intercooler to it, not only to give it power to cool that charge air, to lower the oxides of nitrogen emission, and to be able to run more boost, so you could have be stirring that pot more. The more motion that you have in a cylinder, the, on a gasoline or diesel engine, the quicker the burn rate. Now, <clears throat> for those of you that are involved in aviation, and you have some sort of piston engine in your aircraft, is that most... Uh, reciprocating engines are turbocharged in aviation but whereas on the ground or on earth I should say because it would be marine also on on the water or on the ground uh, we use turbocharging to increase the volumetric efficiency so we can increase the power of the engine that aircraft engines are what they call normalized it's the word normal with I-Z-E-D uh, at the end and when an engine is normalized that means that it's going to make for an aircraft it's going to make the same amount of power at sea level on the ground as it does at its ceiling so let's say if its ceiling is 20,000 feet where the air is less dense with oxygen the turbocharger 
will feed just enough air in it to increase the volumetric efficiency so it makes the same amount of power. So if it's 200 horsepower at sea level on the ground, it's going to be 200 horsepower at 5,000 feet, 10,000 feet, 15,000 feet, 20,000 feet. And it's norm. that's what they call normalized. And uh, the reason for that is they want the same power level, and they don't want, they're not interested in stressing the engine. There's no way to pull over at uh, 30,000 feet. So I don't think those planes go that high, but I know there's a lot of pilots who will probably correct me, but, but whatever. So an aircraft engine is normalized where a turbocharged engine on a piece of farm equipment, a turbocharged engine in your pickup truck is there for power. All right, increase volumetric efficiency beyond what it would normally do, but on aircraft it is just to keep the power level the same. Now, whenever you are adding more air into an engine, gasoline or diesel, you also need to add more fuel. And the fuel delivery methods are going to be unique to whether it's gasoline or diesel, and then again, unique to the manufacturer. But keep in mind that you cannot be forcing air into this engine to increase the volumetric efficiency without keeping the air fuel ratio in the right balance. So the more boost you have, the more boost pressure, the more volume of air, the more CFM of air, you need to have more fuel. So this is a system that has to work together. SERP, supercharged, turbocharged, whatever, all right? And uh, air has to be met with fuel. All righty, so now we're going to break away and at this particular point, I'm going to focus on turbocharging and not supercharging. And for the simple reason being is that in this venue, as far as agriculture is concerned, is that you, there really are not any that I am cognizant of supercharged diesel engines that are being used. Now, I know years ago, the old Detroit diesels, uh, the two-stroke Detroit diesels were both turbocharged and supercharged. And the reason for that being is that there is an inherent lag in turbocharging because you have to get the exhaust gas volume and speed up enough to be able to turn this turbocharger. Whereas a supercharger is intrinsically linked to the crankshaft. If the crankshaft turns faster, the supercharger turns faster. So that is something called turbo lag. And today, through uh, advanced engineering, they've they've basically eliminated the majority of turbo lag. But if any of you guys are drag racers, that's why you would look at, let's say, like a top fuel motor, uh, alcohol motor, basically in, in alcohol drags to alcohol funny car, top fuel drags to top fuel funny car. I know that on uh, my Twitter account, Matt Hagen, who is a two-time and may very well be a three-time world funny car champion, uh, follows me on Twitter, and uh, he's also a farmer. I believe they farm about 2,000 acres or so on Rancher in Virginia. But you look at those engines, and they're supercharged. And the reason why they're supercharged is they want that instantaneous increase. They would say boost, but it's really in volumetric efficiency. As soon as that crankshaft speed move gets increased, that the, that the amount of boost in lockstep goes up. But in the agricultural application on a highway truck or whatever we're going to use, you're going to see a turbocharger. Okay. The turbocharger is going to be bolted onto the, into the exhaust system somewhere. It's going to have a feed for the exhaust to go into it, and it's going to have an exit uh, that goes into the induction system of the engine. All right, And whether it's gasoline or diesel, it's going to be the same thing. 
Now, there's two sides to this turbocharger, and some people call it a hot, and some people call it a cold, and that would be that would be accurate, but the proper name is you have the turbine side and the compressor side. The turbine side is the exhaust side, and the compressor side is the air side, the inlet side. So the exhaust goes into the turbine, and there's a wheel in there, like a water wheel, and I'm sure 99.9% of you that are listening to this are, are familiar with what these look like by, by having one apart or looking inside and seeing it, and it's a wheel with fittings on it, and there's a lot of engineering and a lot of theory in the design of those fins on both the compressor side and the turbine side, so uh, that could be three shows onto itself. But anyway, so the cold side, the air inside is the compressor because that's compressing the air, increased volumetric efficiency, put it into the cylinder, right, to make it fuller. And the turbine side is driven by the exhaust. And the housing is historically called a volute. And uh, a volute is, in engineering, is described as a housing that is curved like a funnel and, it, and it, the funnel ends at some sort of discharge port so that some people call it a scroll or a um not a seashell a uh i forgot what the uh i forgot what shell they call it on the beach but anyway so like a scroll type of uh scroll type of housing but that's a volute and a lot of sprayer pumps if you look at the bigger sprayer pumps which i'm sure you guys have i have a mickey mouse sprayer right because i'm a small farm you know but um but uh, if you look at the bigger sprayer pumps, they look like the compressor side of a turbocharger, a supercharger, because they actually are. And there's a volute with a, a compressor in it, and uh, with the uh, with a wheel in it. Except instead of moving air, it's moving uh, the spray chemical, the water, and the uh, whatever is is mixed in your recipe there. All right, so that is called the volute. Now, what's going to happen is that the fins, the blades on the compressor and the turbine are going to be opposite. So as the, so as the exhaust comes up, it, the blades are going to be fa- uh, designed to face one way and the turbine face the other way because it, the one has to be driven and the other one is the driven member, right? So the compressor is going to compress the air and the next step in its path is going to be to some sort of charge air cooler intercooler and then into the engine and we discussed why that would be now what i want what i want to discuss is that you know there's there's two terms and we use them a lot in engineering and they could be used in any walk of life but they re- they're traditionally not used that much in normal conversation you know you're at the cafe having coffee with your other farmer buddies and you don't use these terms and the to two terms, uh, and sometimes I use them too much in my normal conversation. People look at me like I'm nuts, but uh, <laughs> but I probably am to a certain extent. So, uh, but um, there's a term called empirical and theoretical. Now, empirically, you could you could describe as uh, not common sense, but what you would know would happen or experience. So I know for if I go up and I punch somebody in the nose, right, there's a very good chance empirically I know that they're going to punch me back or kick me or hit me, or even if they don't do it, if I punch somebody in the nose, um, the police are going to come, I'm going to get arrested and get in trouble. So empirically, I know that if I do something, that's going to happen. 
Now, in theory, a theoretical approach would be, well, you could punch somebody in the nose, but they could be a pacifist, and they may not hit you back, or maybe the police will say, oh, you only punched the guy in the nose, he's all right, forget about it, and they won't come. So that's the theory. The theory doesn't always uh, work out in life, but the empirical is what you practice, your practical knowledge or your practical experience or what, what life has taught you. So now, empirically, through experience, that you know that you could be driving or operating a diesel engine with a turbocharger on it, and it could start to load. And the turbo, you'll hear the turbo, and turbo start to spin faster, that you'll hear the high-pitched sound come. And if you had a boost gauge, you'd look at it, and the boost would go up a little bit. But you did not move the throttle. And probably when I, when I used to teach this in a classroom, on the auto industry, I would basically say you could be you could be going down the highway. There could be a semi next to you. He's going along. He's he's walking by you slow. You have the window down. You're listening, and then you start to climb a slight grade. You could hear empirically that the RPM of the engine didn't change, but the pitch of the turbocharger changed, and you could hear that the sound of his exhaust changed. That the engine is making more power, and that is because unlike a supercharger, a turbocharger is passive. And the way it works is from the expansion of the hot exhaust gas coming out of the cylinder head. And I don't want to get too, too overly technical here, but as the exhaust exits the cylinder head and then it'll go through a pipe and go to the turbine side of the turbo, it it does what is called, it, um, it expands. And the type of expansion it has is isentropic, or isentropic, however you want to pronounce it, right? And it's isentropic. And what that means is that it ex- that it expands without any loss of heat. So there's no loss of heat, whereas normally when something that is gaseous, that is in a rarefied form, expands, that will lose some heat, and that's why when it gets compressed, it gains more heat. But it's isentropic expansion out of the exhaust port. So what's happening is this exhaust gas is leaving the exhaust port of the cylinder, and it's trying to expand. And that expansion of the exhaust gas through... that isentropic expansion is what's going to spin that turbine wheel which is like a water wheel and when you load the engine all right load that diesel engine what's happening is that it's getting more fuel it's loading all right and the exhaust gas temperature of a pyrometer in any of your equipment and if you if you've got a combine you got great yields right you got 500 bushels per acre and you, you're you coming out of a 300 bushel per acre headland and you go on to that 500 bushel per acre headland and man this baby's working now because it's chopping that corn right and that's great we want 500 bushels and then you look at it and you're going to see that the exhaust gas temperature and the pyrometer if you're looking but you're probably looking more at the yield monitor and getting all excited but if you were to study the exhaust gas temperature and then the boost they're going to go up because that's through the expansion of the heated exhaust coming from the engine is going to spin the turbocharger 
turbine faster. And then as, as you kind of back out on the throttle, the boost will come down a little bit because the heat of the exhaust is going to be diminished and it's not going to have as great of an expansion rate. Alrighty? So a turbocharger is considered to be passive. In other words, it's going to be it's going to respond to the load on the engine and that's going to happen through the heating of the air in the cylinder from the combustion event the hotter the combustion event the more isentropic uh, the more uh, it's going to want to expand without thermal loss already so that is how it works now the thing basically is is that on a turbocharger we need to be able to control this boost level this pressure going into to the cylinder because at one particular point the the components inside the engine the piston the head gasket the rings the cylinder head itself the connecting rod cannot take any more pressure it cannot be unlimited pressure all right just keep going 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 uh until it was one particular point something is going to break and we also have fuel limitations because remember we have to match the fuel to the incoming air so there's limitations so we need to control this boost pressure in some way because otherwise if you got that engine very loaded and and very fueled and and got it uh, you would have a lot of expansion coming out of that cylinder uh, that exhaust port into that turbine housing and you would keep spinning that turbocharger faster 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 and the boost pressure would be going up in in lockstep with that and then at one particular point you'll find the weak link in the engine and you know that's what happens with a lot of guys when they buy these tuners to put into these pickup trucks and they have them for farm equipment also yeah man you you turn up the boost on it you turn up the wick on it and you fuel it as long as you keep the fuel right you're kind of safe but at one particular point you know you're trying to put 10 pounds of a sausage in a five pound sack something's going to break and that's why historically most of the times those guys pop those motors eventually if they put too aggressive what we'd call a calibration in it and they're running too much pressure and too much fuel uh, a lot of heat in the cylinder a membrane engine is a heat pump the more heat it's going to more the more uh, power it's going to make more heat and air and then you find the weak link and lots of times the weak link is the head gasket because the head actually starts to pick up off the head bolts and wiggle around over there and then it, it it blows the flame blows out and cuts the head gasket and the head gasket is popped uh, that's best case scenario worst case scenario you take a ring land off a piston uh, you usually break a piston before you throw a rod through the block but uh, hey that's happened also so there has to be a way for us to control this a safety switch to control the amount of boost in an engine and what that is called is the waste gate and on what you will find other than in a racing application a high performance application even I mean, a tractor puller would be the same thing a high performance but on something that is a production engine they have what is called an internal wastegate and what the wastegate is is very simple it's a metal disc with a rod and it goes to an actuator and what the wastegate does at a certain boost pressure this actuator will move the wastegate which is like a disc a little round disc all right and there's a port there and it will allow some of the exhaust to bypass the turbine 
all right if it bypasses the turbine it's not going to work against it and increase the boost so basically you could consider in simplistic terms a wastegate to be a very well controlled exhaust leak but since it's what they call an internal wastegate it's in the housing of the turbine the uh, the turbine side of the compress uh, of not the compressor of the turbo the hot side is that you don't hear an exhaust leak because it's bypassing and it's a passage that bypasses into uh, right down into the exhaust system and doesn't go into the volute where the interface between the uh, the turbine wheel and the housing the volute housing so it could compress the air so that's what's called a wastegate and that's how it's controlled and if you look at the turbocharger in most applications what you will see is that there's that there's what people call a vacuum hose it's really not a vacuum hose it's it's a rubber line it looks like vacuum hose but it's to control pressure and then what will happen is that the wastegate that's called the actuator and it'll have a spring in it and the spring will keep the wastegate closed and then the boost pressure from the manifold will go through that rubber line and it will start to work against that spring and then at a certain point let's say if it's set for 15 pounds at 15 pounds it opens up that passage and then the exhaust bypasses the turbine already very 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 simple if that ho rubber hose rots I hate to call it a vacuum hose because it's not, it's a pressure hose, but it's made, it's basically a piece of vacuum hose if you went to the auto parts store. If that rubber hose rots or comes off, then what you're going to do is you're going to have no control up to a certain point of the boost level, and the engine will run more boost. And then what a lot of guys do is they used to use an aquarium valve and they have little they have better valves for until now and you could tee in an aquarium valve in that rubber line to the wastegate actuator and if you bleed it off a little bit right and bleed it off a little bit so you could get another pound or two of boost out of the turbocharger safely so let's say it was set at 15 pounds and you put a little aquarium valve in there then you bled it off and you really had 17 pounds coming into the manifold but the wastegate actuator thought it was 15 you would produce 17 pounds of boost and that's a trick that a lot of guys do or used to do in a hot rod world the hot rod something with a turbocharger very simply and a lot of, and if you also look at it a lot of wastegate actuators will have a threaded rod that goes from the actual the the, um, the housing of the actuator to the wastegate um, lever and if it's threaded it's like a turnbuckle if you shorten that rod up right you will increase the boost uh, because you're compressing the spring more inside the uh, the wastegate actuator. Alrighty, but the wastegate is used and it simply bypasses the exhaust from going to and be uh, to affect the turbine. Alrighty, uh, another couple quick little things is that the bearing inside almost every turbocharger is what's called a floating bearing, and it needs to have oil there and it needs to have oil and what's going to happen is that it's supported on oil so with the engine off if you were to take the take the uh be able to gain access to the compressor side or the turbine side you'll see there'll be some free play and you could move that shaft or on that 
put that the center part of the turbo that holds the bearing and the shaft is called the cartridge and you could move it up and down to be some play and it's actually a dial indicator setting for that for the amount of movement the the, the on the farm thing would be is you if you inspect that you want to be able to move it and rotate it with your fingers and you want it not to hit the housing if it hits the housing then there's excessive play in that bearing but do not be surprised is um, you will have a little bit of play with the engine off because it's a floating bearing it's like a crankshaft resting on a bearing it needs to have a film of oil in it to support it so it doesn't move up and down and then the other thing is that if you look inside the compressor side which is the air inside going to the intercooler and you have a lot of oil in there then you have uh, one of two things going on. Either that seal is becoming violated because the turbocharger is oiled with engine oil. It's not self-oiled. The engine oil comes in through the top and there's a drain back on the bottom that usually goes to the oil pan or someplace depending upon the engine design, the block or the timing case cover, what have you. It goes back into the oil pan somehow. So either that seal is becoming violated and or if the crankcase ventilation system on that particular engine is not working efficiently then you will actually build up a lot of oil film in there and one of the problems is that you're putting that oil into the engine but also that oil is going into the charge air cooler and it's actually coating the um, the tubes in the charge air cooler and acting as an insulator and making it less efficient so if you do have an oiling problem in there let's say the turbo seal went bad and or you had an engine where you had a lot of oil in there due to a lot of blow by or the crankcase ventilation system is not working properly once you repair that it would it would be a very good idea for you to remove that charge air cooler and that you could wash it out with mineral spirits or you could wash out with a product like like uh, simple green with water just make sure it's dry and cut that oil that's in there because it'll be much more effective at lowering the temperature of the charge here once you coat those those tubes with oil the amount of heat transfer from the tubes to the fins drops down dramatically uh as an as an, another break away from this is that the people who like to run a plugged air filter all the time or a cheap air filter already that doesn't have the right flow rate you'll cause a lot of low pressure at that seal uh because the turbocharger be sucking trying to suck like you trying to suck through a uh, a collapsed straw and that low pressure area is going to violate that seal for that oil and it's going to wear it at an exponential rate and eventually it's going to fail and put a lot of oil through there so that ten dollars that you saved on the cheap air filter all right uh instead of buying the oe one the ten dollars that you saved if you run a lot of hours on your equipment or a lot of miles you'll end up putting the turbocharger cartridge in there and rebuilding it because of that seal is going to become violated it's going to push oil and if that seal goes away completely you're pushing oil baby through that thing like you wouldn't believe it's going to smoke like an old chimney and you're going to be burning oil you see trucks going down the road and all of a sudden they're starting to puff a lot of oil and historically the majority of it is coming from that turbo charger seal you ready and then um the thing is that what you need to be concerned with on a turbocharger is you need to be concerned with the integrity of the hoses uh, going into it for exhaust leaks and out of it to the intercooler and from the turbocharger and to the engine for the most for the most boost pressure uh, and have the most efficient operation. But to recap this, it's very simple: is that you know the turbocharger is exhaust driven. 
it's going to have the exhaust expand and drive it it's going to turn the compressor wheel the compressor wheel is going to build boost the whole name of the game here is to increase volumetric efficiency and if you uh, increase the volumetric efficiency then the engine is going to produce more power for its size and then also on a uh, it's also an emission control device by improving the combustion uh, of inside the cylinder by added motion in, in there so there's more motion and you're like fanning like I say a, barbec a barbecue grill uh, the, a lot of turbochargers as I said are liquid cooled now keep in mind that there's a seal there also, so if you start to push coolant through an engine, white smoke, steam coming from the exhaust, keep in mind that it could be coming from the turbocharger, and there's an oil cooler line, not oil cooler, oil feed line, and sometimes if you were not good with changing the oil, that that return line is just gravity feed fed, and it will plug up or at high engine rpm it cannot flow enough oil because it's plugged up with sludge because not you right you you great maintenance the previous owner didn't take care of that and so if you start to push a lot of oil through there keep in mind that you have to look at that drain pipe also uh, the wastegate actuator and that rubber line is going to control the boost and when it does come time for that turbocharger to uh to be gone through if you're ever going to inspect it you need to look specifically on the on the compressor side to see if what we call eight something eight a stone eight a chip eight something all right that got in there, a piece of dirt got in there because it'll actually it'll booger up or take a dent or knock one of the uh the fins off on the compressor wheel and booger it up or dent it up and then it's going to it's going to throw it out of balance and i am working uh with the hot with heinz industry which is the which is uh heinz industries which is the industry the engine building and turbocharger rebuilding industries premier manufacturer of balancing equipment and if you're going to have a turbocharger rebuilt it's paramount that it is balanced and balanced properly so if a guy says so if you if you're buying a kit to rebuild it at home and you're putting you know in the farm shop you put the seals and the gasket in it, what have you that's fine that's resealing and regasking it but it really needs to be balanced and i am going to very shortly have up on my website under the learning tab uh, I'm going to have a complete article on turbocharger balancing that I'm working with Heinz Industries on. So that should hopefully be up within the next month. So that basically is turbocharging in a nutshell. It's passive. Supercharging is crankshaft driven. Turbocharging is exhaust driven. It's probably been one of the greatest friends to the diesel engine. It made the diesel engine very, very Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Great fuel economy. Um great fuel economy for the power it produces the energy density at light load and with the turbocharger it is allowed to uh respond or reacts like superman uh so it's going to have be able to produce a lot more power when you need it and if you don't need it it very quietly sits there and does nothing so if you have any questions it's hard to explain all of this in a short time but hopefully that you've had a uh he uh, got, got a little bit of better understanding of turbocharging. But if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me, as always, at uh, Hot Rod Farmer at thefarmmachinerydigest.com. So now we're going to have a very short special delivery section. And as always, for the past few months, uh, special delivery is brought to you by Firestone and Firestone Ag. And you know something? 
you know, the Firestone people should really be your go-to people when it comes time to get tires. And whether that's on a new piece of equipment, you're ordering it, you could spec it out with Firestone specifically. They have that, you know, that great 23-degree tread bar, but also they have uh, those VF and IF tires, and that's definitely, definitely the way to go on any piece of farm equipment, even on a grain cart uh, or a sprayer, you could get those VF tires for that. And it's a little bit more investment up front, but the the way they protect your soil is more than worth it and you know they have a nine-year warranty so they're not gonna wear out tomorrow so you really have to amortize that little bit of additional cost for that vf firestone tire over a normal standard tire but you know harvey firestone was a farmer so when you buy in firestone you're buying you're buying tires from a farmer and you know he always dreamt of just getting rid of those steel wheels and bringing the farm up into the modern age so that it would be less soil compaction and a better ride for the farmer so the field work could be done quicker and that's really what it was all about and that's why he brought the invented the pneumatic tire for farm equipment and you know that technology still lives on today and I could tell you firsthand is that I've been to the Firestone test farm many times in Columbiana Ohio which is Harvey's old farm I think it's his aunt's farm. I think his parents' farm was right next to that. And, you know, the stuff they do there to put those tires to and test them. And they test it on a real farm. And, at a, you know, it's, a, it's, it's both. It's a real farm and it's also a test facility. So it's very, 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 very interesting. So, you know, your soil is the lifeblood of your farm. And as I always say, and you know, so many people don't look at it this way, is that they recognize that the soil is the lifeblood, but... You know, the tire is what's touching the soil, and you really need to protect that soil for the highest yields. So when it comes to think about tires, whether whether you're retire, retiring a uh, piece of equipment that you have or that you bought uh, pre-owned at an auction, or you're looking for new equipment, and uh, you know, think think about Firestone. You go on my website. There's a great link there for. Uh, to Firestone and check them out. I know without a doubt that you will be very, very happy with those tires because how can you not be? It's a farmer to a farmer, right? So listen, check them out. It's worth your time. And even if you're not buying tires now, check it out and learn. I like to do my due diligence. So when it comes time to buy a tire, I know buy a planter, buy a tire, buy a car, buy a tractor. I like to do my due diligence. So check out Firestone. And if you come into Commodity Classic this year in Orlando, please stop by and see not only me at the Firestone booth, but all the good people at Firestone. And they'll uh, give you uh, a very good education on tires and you could apply that to anything that you have so listen i have a very simplistic question uh and it comes from george clark and he is in oklahoma and he says to me ray i want to thank you so much for doing these podcasts i really enjoy them and i'm starting to look at your website and i'm finding a lot of great information there well thank you i appreciate that and but my i have a very simple question and why do most modern vehicles, not farm equipment, but like my pickup truck or my wife's car, do not have a dipstick for the tra- automatic transmission? And uh, I feel your pain because my stuff doesn't have a dipstick either. And believe it or not, I'm going to give you a very simple answer because this is this, this that's what it is. I am against that. I like having a dipstick. I like to be able to smell my fluid, look at the color of my fluid, and to be able to check it because I like to, I'm a maintenance person. But the reason why the industry 
remove the dipstick from almost every application on a uh, production vehicle, street vehicle, I'm not talking about farm equipment here, is because 99% of the people never, ever uh, check their fluid. And then the other thing was that, but the real main reason was that, that believe it or not, that was the infiltration point or the, or the uh, greatest infiltration point for the amount of dirt, debris, and moisture to get into the transmission fluid. So, and then when people did check it, or if a mechanic worked on it lots of times, they didn't seed it all the way, and it made it even worse. But even with the dipstick seeded, the industry claims, I don't have the data, but they claim that that's where almost all of the dirt infiltration and moisture got into the fluid, and they felt that since the people were not looking at it and, and really using it, because very few people today even open the hood on their car or their pickup truck, let alone check the fluids. I know you do, and I do. But, and they said that they could have longer transmission life and keep the fluid uh, in better condition with, by, by eliminating the dipstick. So that is the, that's the real deal. Disappointed to, uh, to hear that. I wish that there was a way I could retrofit a dipstick to my newer vehicles, but you can't. I wish that they would have the tube there and they'd have like a, a bolted on cap and you could buy the dipstick and then put it in there or whatever, but you can't. But it's really no more complex than that. It's dirt infiltration and moisture infiltration into a sealed unit and the only other place that it could get in is the vent and that the vent hose on the transmission the vent tube and that is very, very small and it's up usually by the bell housing. So listen, I want to thank you so much for listening uh, to the show today. I enjoyed delivering it to you. Hopefully you guys enjoy it also and i i just want to you know once again thank all of you and uh, for only being a couple of months into this our podcast is uh some months is the most downloaded podcast and uh if it's not the most downloaded it's number two and number three but for the month of january it was one of the most downloaded podcasts and on the one network it was number one so that's all because of you so listen you have a blessed blessed week and hopefully you could tune in next week and i just wanted to uh, tell you that the hot rod farmer is pulling for you the american farmer rancher and for my beloved america you have a blessed day and have a great week bye Bye.